Hello, my friends. It's Ryan from the Prolific Creator Podcast. Now, many of you have asked, hey, Ryan, how do I support the show? Well, I finally listened. Starting today, you can subscribe to the Prolific Creator Plus on ACAST Plus for $3 a month. That's less than a cup of coffee. No apps to download and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Get access to the entire archive of Prolific Creator Awesomeness. Over 160 episodes going back to 2017. Yes, that's right, my friends. A plethora of information and inspiration, tips, tricks, and interviews to get your art and work into the world. Remember those ads? Say bye, bye, bye. Wait, there's more. For $5 a month, you can get access to the full prolific creator experience. This includes the full archives, early access to episodes, listener Q&A, book and movie reviews, and interviews not for the public, and perhaps any other awesomeness I might do on the microphone. Sounds awesome, right? Yeah, it does, Ryan. If you want to listen for free, you'll notice the last 50 episodes or so will always be available wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember, by subscribing today, you don't have to download any new apps, and you can simply keep listening on the podcast platform you prefer. Cool. Okay. Cool. Thanks for your love and support in advance. Simply click on the link in the show notes or on my website, and it'll take you where you need to go. Now on to the show. Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, I'm Tom Merritt. And I'm Sarah Lane. And we love talking about tech. Now you might wonder why. Isn't tech news all antitrust cases and stealing data these days? No, I mean, we do help you understand all of that without the hype you might get from a lot of other sources. But there's so much more. Like Taiwan rolling out a digital currency. Autonomous shipping being threatened by cyber pirates. And NFTs being for more than just fleecing people out of their money, like (laughs) concert tickets or booking vacations. Did you know about these? Well, you would know them well if you listen to Daily Tech News Show. You'll be the most well-informed person on tech in the room. So wherever you listen to your podcasts, follow Daily Tech News Show. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hey, it's Ryan from The Prolific Creator, where we talk about life and art and see what sticks. Well, hello, my friends. So good to talk to you today, and I'm so excited to share another interview with you. Uh, my new friend, Daniel Kraus, who I'll mention just in a moment. And whenever you are listening to this podcast, uh, it is November. We just had our midterm elections in America when you're listening to this, this may mean nothing to you. This could be years from now. Who knows? But we just had our midterm elections, and I really enjoy watching people lose their minds over politics. It's one of my great joys. It's amazing how much hope and how much emotional energy and how much venom and how much time and eyeballs and scrolling that we put into politics. But I want to say this. This is not a political statement, my friends, but this is to remind us that it doesn't matter who's in office. It doesn't matter if your party won or if your party lost. It doesn't matter if your policy got in, passed, or didn't get passed. Is that it doesn't dictate the art that you're called to make. It doesn't dictate the work that you are to do. It doesn't dictate how you are called to love 
your family, to love your neighbors. It doesn't change the fact that we are to be thinking about how we can help our friends, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers thrive and how we can be an encouragement to them. And with this show, those that are writing books, those that are painting, those that are starting businesses and nonprofits, uh, it doesn't stop the fact that we're still called to do those things and put those things into the world because your words matter and your work matters and your life matters. And so regardless of party, regardless of election results, we still have a greater calling. And so I want to just remind us of that. Not that you didn't know that, not that you aren't smart people. And today we have another artist, Daniel Krauss, who reminds us of that, uh, the power of art. And he's written a new book called Wrath, which is a sci-fi book um, that he wrote with a doctor. And they really dig into some big ethical questions about even though we have this technology to do certain things, um, what is too far? Um, and they deal with genetic uh, enhancement and it has to do with rats. It's really kind of a cool idea. And I think you're going to really love uh, our conversation because we talk about, again, doing the research and what that looks like. And if you're a writer and you're not in a particular field, how do you learn about these things? How do you put this into fictional form and not make it sound boring and dry? And uh, Daniel does a really good job of uh, helping us think through that. And, uh, and also just the big ethical questions. And I think that's what the beauty of art can do. The beauty of fiction, uh, poetry, what, music, whatever art form, filmmaking, uh, is to be able to talk about subjects and talk about issues, but not have to be preachy about it or be moralistic about it, but actually raise the question. And so he's really hoping that comes through in his book. Um, again, it's not a uh, it's, it's not a moral fable, uh, but it does raise some great questions. So I'm really looking forward to sharing my chat with Daniel Kraus. You can check out all his work uh, in the show notes. And just wanted to also let you know, uh, we have our newsletter. Uh, I've kind of shifted the newsletter to the Daily Nudge. And uh, hopefully this new newsletter will encourage you. And it's uh, just my way of encouraging in your art and in your life, uh, helping to deepen our art and to make better art, but also to deepen our lives. And so just some uh, daily, uh, often links encouragements, books, resources, pointing you in the right direction just to keep you encouraged to make the art that uh, you are called uh, to make. So without further ado, here is my chat with Daniel Krauss. Well, hey, welcome everyone to The Prolific Creator. Today, I am have the pleasure to have Daniel Krauss on the show. And Daniel has a new book out called Wrath. Uh, it's a sci-fi book that I'm looking forward to jumping into together. And uh, well, Daniel, why don't you say hello? Um, I know we've already uh, commiserated over allergies, but tell us uh, one thing that uh, someone would, uh, only your family and friends would know about you. Oh, gosh. Um Boy, one thing that my family, <laughs> I'd expect to be thrown off so quickly. Um, uh, uh, I'm drawing a complete blank. Um, uh, I, I, I haven't, I've just absolutely blank. 
Okay, uh, fine. We're just going to have to end the interview here. This is going nowhere. No. Uh, what do I people normally say to such? Yeah, things? I know. I, I actually love the question because a lot of people do the same thing and it's great. Um, well, someone just said uh, they have a passion to learn how to roller skate. And uh, I thought that was kind of odd. So um, we had to dig into that a little bit, but um, that's okay. So we'll, we'll learn more about you along the way, but, um, but yeah, I, I, uh, I was looking forward to talking to you because uh, when someone reached out to me about your book, uh, I really liked the idea of, uh, I mean, I love sci-fi, but um, also writing this book with um, now tell me your co-author's name or Dr. Sharon, his name is Sharon Mualam. Okay. Uh, talking about genetics and getting the science right and things like that. That seemed like a important piece to this latest book. Um, but I want to just talk a little bit kind of the kind of what's the origin story of this particular work. I know you've written a lot of things, but uh, yeah. How did the seed of this idea kind of come about? Well, this book came from Sharon. Um, he had this idea. I mean, he's a geneticist who's, you know, world renowned and has worked all over the world and um, is very rarely in the United States, actually. So that's why it's so hard to get him on podcasts is that he's, he's gallivanting around the globe um, constantly uh, doing uh, really important things. Uh, and I think, you know, having to sort of speak for him here, I think he spent all of his career working in labs and um, working with lab rats um, and, and having a good sense of how, efficacious it is or isn't to work with um, lab animals. And, um, you know, I, I think he has a, a, a big degree of sympathy for animals. And he had come up with this uh, really great idea um, that was uh, a very sort of Michael Crichton-y type of idea uh, about um, essentially a, a lab rat who's one of our major characters and um, you know, Sharon's ideas tend to be uh, very, very near future. So, you know, the, the, the science we're talking about in wrath is so near that I think the day the book that came out, there were all these headlines about um, not about the book, but about something uh, directly related to the book. It was about, human gene human brain genes being implanted into rats uh so it's it's happening everything in the book is happening right now um somewhere in the in the world um so his notion was that pretty soon we're going to get edited pets and so we have a company in the book called edited pets and um those are pets that are just genetically altered through uh, a system we call inter but it's more or less um like a, like a CRISPR type technology of gene editing. And so these people are going to make edited pets uh, that are, that have qualities that will make them more interesting to us. Uh, and their newest pet is a rat named Sammy. And you might say, do people really want a rat? Well, they've edited it. So it's cute. It's uh, got big eyes and fluffy hair and it's really oh, smart. It has these human brain genes. So it, it's, uh, it can communicate through like a touchpad. And it's just this, you know, incredible um, animal. And now, of course, it being sort of cautionary tale, the animal gets out um, before, you know, the, the prototype animal gets out before they have figured out how to turn off the brain growth. Like they've essentially are using red light uh, to stimulate 
the brain growth. Um, but the, you know, they, once the rat is out, red light is everywhere around us. Red light is in um, supermarket scanners and automatic doors and just everywhere. So once the rat is out, every time it passes through red light, it, its brain grows. And so it starts this sort of, sort of flowers for Algernon type of journey where the rat gets smarter and smarter and smarter until its brain begins to hit up against its skull. And that's when the rat starts going insane, basically. But it's so smart that it knows what's happening to it and is angry at the people who did this to him. And so it starts sort of amassing this rat army to get back at the, the people who have done this to him and all the other rats out there. So yeah, long-winded answer that I basically just summarized the book. But uh, yeah, I think it comes from what Sean has experienced directly and what he's seen coming around the next bend. Yeah, that, that's kind of, I mean, I'm actually glad you gave kind of a, a thorough summary because uh, that was kind of the question was uh, it, what I love about sci-fi is just the the what if, I mean, most fiction, it's what if, and then you write a story, but, but, you know, what if these kinds of things begin to happen, yeah. you know, what's the consequences? And I think sci- sci-fi does a good job on that. Um, so, so tell me a little bit, kind of what, what's your relationship with Dr. Sharon? I mean, does he come to you with an idea and says, okay. I'm not a fiction writer, but here's the idea. What if we wrote it as a fiction book? Like how did that relationship kind of begin? I mean, did you, how often do you meet together, you right. know, throw ideas around? I mean, are you kind of getting like, I want to make sure I get the science right. Like talk, talk yeah. a little bit about your relationship. Well, I didn't know him at all. Um, and uh, we have the same literary agent. He's written nonfiction books before. Mm-hmm. And so my agent contacted me and was like, look, I have this other client. He's got, he's, you know, he's an incredible uh, scientist and he's got this great idea for a novelist or for a novel. Um, would you be interested in, in uh, writing with him? And I, initially I really wasn't. Um, I would just have my plate was up full with other things. Um, but I read the, uh, I read the, the idea and I just really liked it. And I really liked how hard the science was. Like it was just packed with with, uh, you know, stuff that was true. Um, and I love, I, you know, that, that space intimidates me because I've never really written something that was that I've written a lot of stuff that involved a lot of research, but never something that was that technical. Um, and I think if Sharon were to, to tackle it himself, he would be in danger of going way over people's heads with the science part of it. So that was, you know, he came to me with the the idea and all the science, and we were in touch basically every day um, during the writing. Where we would we had already sort of established he had sort of the story. We came together and worked on the plot, and I did a lot of character work. Um, and then every day it was a, it was a totally different experience than other books I've written. Every day I would write and send him what I would would have written. Um, and then he would go through it and add some things, change things, fix the science, clarify. And, and then he would also send me stuff to prepare for the next bit, like, because it would be more stuff that I don't know anything about. So he'd send me videos, we'd get on the phone and we'd talk on the phone and he'd draw pictures. And we, it was this constant, um, developing, uh, almost lecture series from Sharon that I then would translate into uh prose based on the outline that we worked on together uh so it was like it, it was a lot 
to carry in my head. You know, like I was constantly having to write. I wrote the book, you know, I did my part of the book pretty fast because I was worried about things I was learning escaping my brain, you know. Like he would pack me so full of uh, new knowledge that I had to get it out quickly before I lost any of it. So uh, this is kind of the the question of all questions, and you've kind of started to answer it, but I'm just curious, uh, you know, one of the, the, you know, with fiction writers, especially is, you know, you do this research, especially if it's a very technical thing, you want to get it right, but you don't want to bring all of your research into the book because then it's just boring and it's, you know, half people are going, well, I don't understand this. How, how much of, of Dr. Sharon, was he wanting you to include more or did he have it kind of mapped out his own vision? How much of you were, were having to like go, okay, well, we need it to be interesting. We don't want to yeah. bore people. We don't want, you know, to d- describe every little detail. Like what was that kind of uh, relationship? Sure. Well, I mean, it, he would usually give above and beyond what was needed. And then I would, because I'm not science minded to begin with, I would translate it in a, a way that made sense to me. And th- thus it would probably make sense to most readers. Now, sometimes things get lost in translation and there'd be a key point that I sort of left out that was actually important. And that stuff would all kind of be fixed in, in the editing process. Um, but generally, if, if I could understand it, if I could come to some understanding what was going on, uh, that was a good sign. Because I'm, I'm typically, with every sort of technical beat in the book, I'm starting really at zero, uh, knowing anything about genetics. Um, so it was, you know, almost like, uh, an instructor was teaching a um, what do you call it? Uh, a TA, not a TA, but a um, like a you know, like the the head of the course is is going out to the teaching assistants. Yeah, you're like the research to teach assistant. Their section. Yeah, um, and that was my job is to sort of then reach the masses with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, th- but we were very copacetic in that. He never wanted to overwhelm people the idea was that it was going to have to be a a great read first and foremost and we didn't think that that really we would have to uh, skimp on any of the science really you just kind of tone down the level of detail Mm -hmm. Um, but it's a book where you know if you really if you're a science head you'll love the details that are in there because they all make sense but if you don't if you're not interested in that stuff at all it's not going to matter you're still going to get the gist because it's all being had it's all having to be explained by in the book to characters who aren't science minded anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I imagine there's probably like a, a good tension or you want to, you want it to be an interesting read as a fiction, as a story, but you also want it to make it believable. So, I mean, there's probably a, an art of like how much do I put in there or not put in there so that people don't go, Oh, that's just crazy. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I've always tended to put a little more than is necessary in there. Mm-hmm. Um, like when I was writing The Living Dead uh, with George Romero, like there's a section that takes place on a nuclear submarine. And I that was another example of a time when I was just really, really buried in research. Um, and I would have sections where I would just go ahead and just load it down with detail, knowing that the readers are not going to be able to follow all of it, but that it would transmit uh, a certain sense of, uh, confidence in the writer like maybe you're not exactly following everything I'm saying in this paragraph but it'll give you the confidence that, I, that I've done the work and I know what I'm talking about and you can sort of trust me 
That's good. Yeah, that, I think that just sharing all this is really helpful for a lot of our community that are writers and especially fiction because it, it is always that that challenge. It's a good challenge. And I've written some fiction too, but it's it's how much I get geeked out by the research, but it's like I don't want to bring everything into the book or it's just <laughs> it becomes yeah. boring or it becomes, you know, uh too long or too detailed or or what have you because you, you know, you still want to tell a good story obviously. Um so uh I'm really fascinated by this um you know, sci-fi in general, but just this book in particular, um, because I think there's a couple of things that um, was uh, kind of hinted at, or and maybe it's Dr. Sharon's passion too, but you know, this idea of like profit driven science. Yeah. Um, that was one of the, the topics, you know, obviously the, you've mentioned already, but like the genetic um, enhancement with no accountability, it's like, just cause we can do something doesn't mean we should do it. Right. Um, so h- how much, um, you know, of that, what was kind of woven into the work as far as those conversations of like kind of the yeah. big, like big picture science questions of like, Hey, just cause we could do something that doesn't mean necessarily we should do it. Or this is a, like you said earlier, it's right around the bend, which might not be great. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Not, it's not great. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, Sharon definitely from the start thought of it as a, a story in the lineage of Frankenstein where, you know, a being is created um, without a world to live in. You know, like, uh, it's great to be this brilliant rat until you realize you're the only one. Um, and the world isn't set up for you. And, you know, and how the rat sort of starts to rationalize that or or make use of it is that he's going to, once you reach sexual maturity, he's going to reproduce with regular rats. And then slowly, not, well, actually not that slowly, pretty rapidly based on how, how fat, fast rats procreate, uh, rats with humanized brain genes would just proliferate within like five years and dominate pretty much all the cities in the world. Um, uh, so yeah, so the Frankenstein element was always there from the beginning. Um, it's the, the book has a, was always sort of a balance between those kind of. Uh, exactly what you said you know we can do it but but should we there it's interesting because pets exist in this weird kind of loophole um there's um and very few people know this but uh labs you know a a standard lab rat has a certain level of like government protection there are things you can do to it things you can't do to it um pets fall under a different umbrella pets fall under the umbrella of ownership of objects a pet owning a pet is in in some legal ways like owning a chair um and so pets don't have those governmental protections and so once you start doing science outside of medical science and you're doing it to create let's say um, designer pets like we are here um that sort of consumer facing um projects fall outside of government regulations um so what you end up doing is you have these companies that that are making for-profit essentially for-profit science companies um that uh you know are, are intrinsically sort of dangerous because they're not they're not guided by uh an overriding um, are the same kinds of overriding laws. Um, and it's, 
you know, it's, it's a recipe for disaster and edited pets, the company in the book, it's sort of a Theranos situation um, where, you know, a project is getting rushed out. And, you know, a lot of these uh, big uh, technologies like that, these big sort of disrupting technologies that uh, companies that we see come up, they, a lot of them, and this is reflected in the book too, are sort of have dual modes that we, we see, you know, they got a lot of them get funded by the government in ways we don't see. So for example, um, edited pets, the company in the book is funded essentially by um, DARPA to um, you can have this customer facing cute little rat you sell, but for us, you're going to make something else. You're going to make, you're going to make rats that can wiggle their way into enemy compounds and blow up bombs that we strap to them and all these other things. So a lot of these. Have you tried finding tickets for any live event lately? It's impossible to keep up and prices are crazy. That's why you have to check out Gold Star. Gold Star makes it easy to discover the best in live entertainment in your city with instant access to awesome events and special ticket deals. Concerts, live theater, comedy, dance, food fests, immersive experiences. You name it, Gold Star has access to special deals you won't find anywhere else with savings of 50% or more. Go to goldstar.com and use code DCPOD to save $10 on your first purchase. That's goldstar.com, code DCPOD to save $10. Companies we love have sort of hidden, darker backstories. Um, and it creates, you know, sort of a moral quagmire. You're like, well, I love this new technology, but uh, would we love it as much if we knew the sort of back end deal that was that was uh, made for this technology to even get funded? Well, I think this is really uh, uh, interesting. Um, just the power of fiction, the power of story, is that I mean, I know you're not trying to write a you know moral tale necessarily, or um, but there's a lot of, you know, social questions that are woven into it that I think sometimes fiction can do even a better job than the nonfiction. I had a, had a guy on, uh, a few months ago who wrote a book about, uh, viruses and things, but he tried to w- weave in a lot of story because he realized like people don't, you just give people facts. It's like, okay, you know, take it or leave it. But there's something about real people being affected by certain things and how they experience it that has more power to it. Yeah. Um, and so what was, um, you know, when you think about that, like w- obviously you're dealing with some big topics, you know, and some big subjects and Dr. Sharon's really passionate about it. And you're obviously getting into this world and going, Oh my gosh, this is terrifying. Um, how do you, how do you write a book? That's not just a, you know, kind of preachy, you know, this is going to happen. This is, you know, are you thinking about that as you're writing it or or how you're kind of approaching it and, um, not making it just a social commentary, but you know, you obviously want to be entertaining and and interesting too. So how, how, how do you think about that? Yes. And particularly with this book, um, typically, you know, I'm handling everything myself, but in this book, you really, it really began with, um, you know, an idea and a cautionary tale. And we knew that exactly as you said, you can't, you know, that's, that could be an essay that could change people's minds. Um, but to be a, to, to be a novel, it has to go through a different process. Uh, and that's really where I came in. 
Um, and, and how you do that is essentially you make, you make all the decisions make sense to the characters. Um, so, you know, for us, it's easy to look at the book and say, well, they shouldn't have done this, <laughs> but uh, you can, you can go character by character and it gets much thornier. You can see why Sienna, the, uh, the main scientist that had what, what is in her history and in her philosophy that um, makes her believe that we have not just the right to do this to animals, but the obligation to bring them along with us on a journey of betterment. You know, if we are all going to become genetically um, improved to avoid certain diseases, et cetera, et cetera, in the, in the near future, do we not owe it to the animals to protect them along with us, to, to extend to them sort of an invitation? Now, I'm not saying I agree with that, but that's sort of, that's where sort of where she's coming from. And then you have Noah, the head, the head of Edited Pets, who's sort of your Steve Jobs type figure, who has his own, you know, backstory that, that makes it really, really important for him to be that kind of figurehead, for people to love him and adore him and to applaud his newest products um, in, a, in a way that makes up for sort of a lack in his life. Uh, so you, you can go down the line and you can individual by individual understand why they've done what they've done. And, uh, and that's, that's really what all this book and all my books are really about is getting you to sympathize with everyone's choices, you know, and the, the worse a person is and their the, the dicier their decision-making, the more I want you to sympathize with them, the more I want, I'm going to work to, to make you understand why they did what they did. Yeah. So uh, I'd love to explore a little further with you, just as far as you, you're as a writer, as a creator, um, you know, where, where did some of that kind of um, instinct come from? I mean, what were some of like your early in- influences where there things you read or books you read that you go, you know what, this, this works because of this, or this is the kind of writer I want to be, or you've obviously written a lot of different genres and different ages. And, yeah. um, you know, how it seems like you've been, um, you had, uh, did some work with shape, shape of water and, mm-hmm. um, film and all kinds of stuff. So, um, yeah, is there anything in like in your background or just growing up or, or just early influences that kind of helped you shape this kind of, um, trajectory? Well, you know, I get asked a lot, like, like why I'm interested in horror and stuff like that. But the way you phrase the question is kind of interesting. Um, like what makes me interested in bringing sympathy to sort of characters might be wrongheaded or, you know, in the most sort of basic sense, evil or your antagonist or whatever. Um, and it's true that my books from the start have really been about uh, the differentiation differentiation between bad and worse, like good versus bad is not particularly interesting to me. Um, and I don't know where that exactly that comes from. I always go back to night, uh, night living dead, which was, had such a huge, huge influence me as a kid. And, you know, really my first hero was the character of Ben in, in that movie. Um, and I, it's, it's probably simplistic to, to hang up this, this proclivity of mine on that one character, but, but he is a character who, you know, does some things that could be considered bad. Like he, he punches out people. He shoots a guy who didn't need to be shot. Like he does some terrible things in the, in the process of doing a general good. 
um, which is to keep the zombies out of the the house. Um, but ultimately, he's proven in the very last, you know, couple scenes, he's proven to be wrong. Like the thing he worked for and that we, the audience, believed in, turns out to be really the wrong tact. He shouldn't have. He, and to me, that was really powerful and remains powerful. That the 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 good guy can make the wrong decision, the bad guy can make the right decision. Um, and it's much more satisfying to me as a writer and a reader to mix up the sympathies like that. And to, you know, I just have no, utterly no interest in um, good guys doing the right thing. I mean, I just, I couldn't be less interested. <laughs> well, I think, you know, I was just talking to another horror writer who was talking about Stephen King. And, you know, there's something interesting about his stories is that he shows a lot of humanity and it's not about the, the device of horror. It's the fear that we all have and the, the reasons we make decisions that we make decisions and the complexity of humanity. And yeah, why do good people do bad things and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And not everyone's, you know, the stories that are nice and neat and tidy just don't resonate as much. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I think for most of us that, that watch anything or read anything, you know, it's when the good guy always wins in the end, it's just like, okay, it's fine. Um, yeah. but that's not true. To, that's not true to life always. Right. It's like, yeah, we, we're, we're all complex. And like, why do we do what we do half the time? Um, but yeah, to kinda, and, and, and yeah, really, ahead. if you were to write a really realistic book, um, the more realistic you go, the, the more people will start to peel off and not be interested in it. Mm-hmm. Like people do some really random ass things that have no accountability through their past or motives. They just do rent, mm-hmm. particularly young people mm-hmm. will do things out of the blue that have no precedent in the way they've lived and you're hard pressed to get that past in a book. You know, at some point your editor or someone will say, well, this doesn't fit with who they are. Um, but that's the way people are. They don't always act logically, even within the parameters of what should be logical to them. So it's, it's a, you know, this is, it's a bigger conversation than just mm-hmm. this book or any books or books or movies. It's, it's really just, there are certain things we want from stories and they, those don't always line up with, with uh, reality mm-hmm. and how people really are. Um, and that's fine. We, we live reality. We don't need to have to have pure reality in our art. Why would we, we want to live it? So there's a little tension there, but it's sort of baked into the idea, I think, of art in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder, you know, this is maybe cliche, but, you know, Breaking Bad is, <clears throat> and I'm not saying that they broke ground on anything, but I mean, they, they really told a story about a guy who really was kind of the anti-hero. Um, and we were really drawn to it. You know, Walter White's this guy who's like underneath it, he wants to do good. And it's, I mean, you don't really under, I mean, he has cancer and he wants to provide for his family and he's gets in the drug trade. And that seems like an odd choice for a, you know, science teacher. Uh, but you, you kind of root for him because you know, underneath that, even though he gets into all this wicked stuff and he's, he's still trying to kind of do good, but then, you know, obviously that evolves into darkness, mm-hmm. but it all, it does raise the question, like, what would we do for, you know, our families, we would do anything. Now, would we do something illegal? Well, hopefully not, but you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. You don't know. Right. Um, I just find that compelling, you know, and it's, and again, maybe that's just why we read fiction and watch movies. Cause sometimes it's, you, we can live through <laughs> things we might never do ourselves, but, um, yeah. but there's something compelling about that, you know, um, that conflict um, of, of who we are and, and why do we do what we do? Um, no, I like that. Um, 
but yeah, tell me a little bit more. So you've, you've found yourself kind of, you know, a lot in the, in the horror genre and now sci-fi and w- working with George Romero and uh, Guillermo del Toro and shape of water and all that. Like how do those kind of uh, relationships begin and um, getting into those kind of uh, worlds relationships. Um, talk us through that. Well, I mean, each one's its own long conversation, you know, um, it, it, there's no one way any of these things happen. Um, uh, you just, you can't, you don't plan for any of these things. You just sort of do your work and then things sort of fall out of the sky every once in a while here and there. Um, for, uh, for, you know, for Guillermo and, and I, you know, that started with a book I wrote called Rodders that he read and liked and, he then recruited me to work with him on Troll Hunters. Um, and then from there, we worked on Shape of Water. Uh, for The Living Dead with George Romero. Um, George Romero died in 2017. As, as I previously referenced with Night of the Living Dead, he was really my hero. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think maybe be partially because I had, had some successful collaborations and partially because Romero's uh, manager knew I was a huge Romero um, fanatic and acolyte and borderline scholar, I'd argue. <laughs> uh, when he died and he had this, you know, epic novel he'd been working on, um, Romero's wife and ma- manager contacted me to see if I'd be interested in finishing that book. So. You know, I just try to stay open to um, ideas and collaborations. Um, I, it's interesting because I don't—I wouldn't have struck myself as a someone who wanted to um, co-write anything really with anyone. I, I, I like to work, you know, sit here at this desk and work alone, and uh, I'm a hermit, and I like it that way. Um, but I've tried to stay open to collaborations, um, and I've done it you know, four times now with different people. And uh, it's always, it's, it has proven to be a way to do the thing that I value most in art, which is to just stay awake and alert um, and to force myself into new spaces. Um, It's hard to do when you're alone, you can do it, but it's just harder. Um, It's sort of like if you're an improvisational musician, it's easier to improvise when there's, other people on the stage because you can play off each other and they're going to do something on piano that makes you have to do something completely you're not expecting to do on drums or whatever. It's harder to, to be there to, to make those radical changes that you wouldn't normally make when you're writing alone. I can do it and I have done it, but it's harder. Uh, bringing new people into the space, they have their own ideas, their own ways of working, their uh, themes they like, and they're going to come up in conflict with yours. Um, but it's a good conflict. It's, it's going to force you to, to look at things in ways you haven't before. It's going to force you to, to sacrifice some things. It's going to force you to have to think harder to make, uh, make your case on certain things. It's just a way of, um, pushing yourself really. Uh, and I found it to be useful, really useful in that way. That's good. I, I like that idea of openness. I think for, you know, artists, people are creating things that are listening to it's, it's just being open to, you know, maybe I've done it, always done it this way or what does collaboration look like, or what does this right. genre look like? Or I think it keeps us fresh. It keeps us 
you know, stretching and growing and, in, in so many good ways. Um, what would be, um, I know we, we have a lot of artists too, that have even writers that have gotten into like collaboration and it was kind of new for them. Cause you know, most writers are t- tend to be even artists, like very, you know, I'm fine just by myself in my studio. I don't need anybody, you know, uh, we'll be like some kind of things you learned about, about collaboration or things yeah. that, that, um, you, you know, you found helpful from when you started to now, I mean, obviously doing a few projects now. I mean, the, the thing that, that stands out, um, when I think about the four different people that I've collaborated with, um, the one that really stands out to me is the first one. When I first collaborated with Guillermo on Troll Hunters, um, and that was the my fourth book. And of course, when I say Troll Hunters, people will probably automatically think the Netflix show that was adapted from the book that Guillermo and I did. Just to make that clear, mm-hmm. um, I was coming off of three my three first books. Um, when that project popped up and they were three very, very grim and dark books. Um, and Trollters really came around at just the right time for me when I was, I was as close to quitting, I think as a, as I've ever been really the only time that I've ever, I've ever considered it. Um, my books had just become kind of painful to write. And they were just, it, it was just a, it, it was a dark, uh, period in, in some ways and this and this project came kind of came out of the blue and was so much more so much more bouncier and happier and, and earnest and joyous than anything else i'd ever done or considered doing and and it really opened up for me the the idea of letting my characters be happy sometimes and letting nice things happen to them um and sort of then uh, thereby sort of letting those kind of things happen to to me as a writer as well uh so i i think i feel like that was a a big thing that i learned uh from collaborating just to sort of you know it doesn't always have to be the stroke of midnight you know in my books it can be high noon every once in a while and it can be um, there, I should uh, make an allowance for happiness sometimes. That's good. I like that. Uh, so, so Daniel, you, uh, have written, you know, different things, worked on different projects. Uh, obviously you have your new book wrath out, uh, which we'll have in the show notes. So you can go buy, uh, five copies for your friends. Um, is what, when you're done with a book like this, do you have like hopes and dreams for it? Like, like, are there like grand ideas of like, this is what I love. I would love a reader to experience after they, they read the book. Uh, what, what would be their takeaway or what would you hope would happen in their lives? I mean, you write, I think any good writer writes at sort of different levels, um, like within a single book, like there's sort of a surface level where someone can just sort of read it and enjoy it. And then there's like deeper levels and themes that you sort of, woven in and, and worked in in a more subtle way. And I think we all dream of the reader who likes the book enough that they pay it close enough attention to, to see those things and appreciate them. And I don't know how often it happens. Um, it, I, I know how often you hear back from somebody who's really given a book that kind of a read and it's rare, um, but it's always uh, a delight when it happens and they don't even have to be right. You know, like when somebody has really given the book a close analysis, whether it's one you even agree with or not, it's always 
really gratifying. Um, but, you know, you have to go into expecting any novel you write will be read as quickly as a person can read and then put aside and never read again. Um, so anything beyond that is always just really great to see, but rare. Well, Daniel, this has been fantastic. And I uh, hope and pray that you have lots of success and Dr. Sharon as well. And I, I can just hear it in your voice. Just, you really enjoyed writing this book and learning from Dr. Sharon and just the the themes behind it. And so uh, definitely will have that in the show notes. Um, go pick up wrath uh, as soon as you can. Uh, what is next? What are you working on and where can people find you? Uh, well, you can find me at danielkraus.com. That'll have all the other links you need. What I'm working on right now is uh, what, what I'm literally working on. Like before we started talking today is uh, pay the Piper, which is the second and final um, George Romero novel. Uh, nice. he, he had essentially written that one, the living dead, which I finished. And then uh, while I was writing that, we went through his archives and we found essentially another half finished book that he had uh, written. So I'm working on finishing that. And then I've got a book I'm just hugely excited about next year. Um, maybe my favorite thing I've ever done called Whale Fall, which is about a scuba diver who gets literally swallowed by a whale and has one hour of air to get out. Um, nice. And that's, uh, that comes out next August. Sounds fun. Well, Daniel, thank you for the time. And this has helped a lot of people. Thanks for sharing your story and your stories. Go pick up wrath and uh, all the best to you, brother. Thank you so much. It was fun. Thank you. Well, there you have it, my friends, Daniel Kraus. Go check out all his work on his website. I put that in the show notes. And I really love this conversation because I think what we're dealing with is the challenge, the challenge of how do we deal with these big issues? How do we talk about these big issues, um, maybe not be scared of talking about these big, big issues. And I think fiction, I think telling stories is a great way to deal with things like genetic advancement and, and when does science and when does technology go too far? Uh, when does it become uh, harmful? And uh, so thank you, Daniel, for sharing your story and your craft and your insights. I know it's going to help a lot of people. So uh, go check out Daniel's work. Also, just want to remind you of three quick things. If you hang with me, three quick things. One, sign up for the newsletter, The Daily Nudge. It's a weekly-ish newsletter to encourage you in art and life, uh, sharing some of my own essays, but also links and other helpful resources that just to keep you moving in the right direction, encourage you to make better and more art and also to deepen our lives together. So check that out. It should be good. I, I really love the community that's forming around that, the hundreds of people that are getting that weekly-ish newsletter. Um, secondly, also, I know it's National Novel Writing Month if you're listening to this in November, and I have a little course called uh, 45-Day Novel. It's also on my website, and I, I made that course quite a few years ago, but it's a way to kind of get that novel out into the world, and I, I share all of my tips and tricks on how to do that from ideas <clears throat> to marketing to editing to uh, publishing and all the different avenues and uh, few hundred students go through that program and so 45 day novel it's on the website you can check that out and i hope that'll be encouragement to you and then lastly if it's not too much to ask uh, leave a review wherever you get your podcast uh, rating a review really helps us get the show out into the world and so hope you are doing well uh, if you are listening to this after the elections don't freak out because you are still called to go make art 
And so like I always say, I have one more thing to say, go make great art. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, I'm Tom Merritt. And I'm Sarah Lane. And we love talking about tech. Now, you might wonder why. Isn't tech news all antitrust cases and stealing data these days? No. I mean, we do help you understand all of that without the hype you might get from a lot of other sources. But there's so much more. Like Taiwan rolling out a digital currency. Autonomous shipping being threatened by cyber pirates. And NFTs being for more than just fleecing people out of their money, like <laughs> concert tickets or booking vacations. Did you know about these? Well, you would know them well if you listen to Daily Tech News Show. You'll be the most well-informed person on tech in the room. So wherever you listen to your podcasts, follow Daily Tech News Show. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> 